Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Raby. This week, we talk with RFF Research Associate Amelia Keyes about her recent research on the Trump administration's Affordable Clean Energy, or ACE rule. Amelia and several colleagues have estimated the effect of the rule on emissions of carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, and nitrous oxide, finding that ACE could actually increase these emissions rather than reduce them. How is that possible? Stay with us and find out. All right, Amelia Keys, my colleague from Resources for the Future, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So we're going to talk today about a recent paper that you wrote with some co-authors on EPA's Affordable Clean Energy Rule, or the ACE Rule. But before we get into that topic, we always ask folks how they got interested in energy and environmental policy in the first place. So can you tell us about that? So yeah, I grew up in Maine, and I spent my childhood you know, on the ocean and hiking around the mountains in Maine and New Hampshire with my family. Uh, and I don't know about how other generations experience this, but as a millennial, for me, climate change was always a well-known phenomenon from when I was a child. So I grew up with this really urgent feeling that our society just wasn't sustainable and the places that I really loved growing up or at risk. So I always felt like I needed to do something about that, but I knew I didn't want to be a scientist. Uh, So in college, I discovered this really awesome discipline called economics, (laughs) where I could study social issues, but also address environmental problems. Right. And then after after college, I had the opportunity to work for the Council of Economic Advisors at the White House under the Obama administration and work on environmental policy there. And that just really solidified my excitement about solving policy problems um, and specifically doing that in environmental policy, bringing together you know, my values from growing up and then my my career interests. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I I identify with that somewhat. I, I'm sort of right on the edge between uh, the millennial generation and the one before, which I guess is what generation X or something. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, climate change has also been on the periphery for me, although I am I think about 10 years older than you or something like right. that. Um, so thanks for making me feel old at the uh, outset <laughs> of the uh, of the podcast. But um, but l- let's get into the uh, the topic at hand, which is um, the article that you wrote with a variety of co-authors um, called The Affordable Clean Energy Rule and the Impact of Emissions Rebound on Carbon Dioxide and Criteria Air Pollutant Emissions, which is in the journal Environmental Research Letters. So we're going to break down sort of that long, dense title and talk about each of the components of it. But first, I want to give a little bit of background, uh, just sort of policy background for those uh, who haven't followed this issue too closely. So we've talked a lot about carbon pricing on this podcast, but uh, as I think we all know, carbon pricing does not exist at the U.S. federal level. However, the Supreme Court in 2007 ruled that the EPA is legally obligated to regulate carbon dioxide emissions under the Clean Air Act. So we're going to talk about how the Trump administration is proposing to do that under the EPA. Uh, And we're going to look at uh, this affordable clean energy rule, which we might call the ACE rule. And it's essentially the replacement of the Obama administration's clean power plan, which never actually went into effect, uh, again, because of court rulings. So uh, the ACE targets something called heat rate improvements at coal-fired power plants. So um, can you start us off with an explanation of what uh, what is a heat rate and what does it have to do with carbon dioxide emissions? 
Yeah. So to start off, I think it might be helpful to share a bit more background about the differences between the CPP and ACE. Yeah, great. There's some legal context here that I think is really interesting and important to understand why the EPA is doing what they're doing right now. As you mentioned, the EPA is legally obligated to regulate carbon emissions from major emission sources, which includes power plants, and that's what the CPP was designed to do originally. The CPP was fulfilling EPA's legal obligation, but it also was one of the Obama administration's hallmark climate policies. Right. The, the biggest difference between ACE and CPP comes from the fact that in comparison to the Obama EPA, Trump's EPA takes a different interpretation of what the EPA's authority is actually to regulate carbon in the power sector. So while the CPP took what we call a systems-based approach to addressing emissions in the power sector, which basically means that it set emissions reduction targets for states and allowed the states to meet their targets with a combination of different methods. Uh, so those methods included, on the one hand, making coal plants more efficient, but also a whole range of other options like switching to low emissions power sources like natural gas and using more renewables. Right. And it also included, beyond the generation side, improving energy efficiency to reduce demand for electricity. Right. So the CPP really was a, a systems-wide approach that aimed to take advantage of you know, any resources available in the electricity sector to reduce carbon emissions. On the other hand, the Trump EPA argues that the systems-based approach that the Obama EPA undertook with the CPP exceeds their authority under the Clean Air Act. Right. And the Trump administration believes that they are only authorized to regulate emissions at major emitting power plants. Uh, the term that is often used for that is inside the fence line. Right. So the EPA contends that they are not allowed to require reductions from beyond the fence line. An example of a beyond the fence line measure is switching uh, from coal generation to renewables or natural gas. So that really restricts the types of methods that the EPA can take to reduce emissions in the power sector. Uh, and that gets us to the question about heat rates. So one of the ways to get coal plants to reduce their emissions is to require them to operate more efficiently. And by efficient, I mean getting the same amount of electricity generation with less carbon emissions. The heat rate is basically a measure of a coal plant's efficiency. And when a coal plant improves its heat rate, it reduces the amount of fuel input that it needs to generate a kilowatt hour of electricity. Mm -hmm. And it becomes uh, more efficient. Yeah, so a higher heat rate is more efficient and a lower heat rate is less efficient. Exactly. So ACE identifies heat rate improvements as the way to reduce emissions at coal plants, and that's the only strategy that they're implementing to reduce carbon in the power sector. Great. So you um, in, and your co-authors in this study, you focus on something called an emissions rebound that uh, takes place. Uh, because of the, the structure of this rule. Can you tell us what you mean by an emissions rebound? Yeah. So I just want to interlude for a second to say that this analysis that I did with co-authors was a result of a collaboration between myself and Dallas Bertrand at RFF, uh, and then a team of researchers at Harvard, Syracuse, and Boston University who are experts on environmental policy, air quality, and public health. 
And to answer your question, an emissions rebound is uh, a really good example of the kind of adverse policy outcome that economists always like to look for. The idea of an emissions rebound is that when a coal plant improves its heat rate and becomes more efficient, it's not only reducing its emissions, but it's also potentially reducing its operating costs. So that actually makes it more competitive in electricity markets. And as a result of becoming more competitive, it might operate more often uh, and in some cases even delay its retirement. So higher generation drives up carbon emissions, so the rebound effect somewhat offsets the emissions reductions that would have occurred if a plant became more efficient but held its generation constant. The emissions rebound effect is a really common consequence of policies that focus on improving efficiency and don't directly regulate the volume of uh, emissions coming from a plant. And we see this in things like, you know, vehicle efficiency standards and, um, you know, home heating efficiency standards. And, and there's a variety of research on this topic trying to measure, you know, how big is this rebound effect? Exactly. So it's a very well documented phenomenon in the economics literature. Um, right. And our, our paper specifically shows that the rebound effect um, is expected to play a big role in minimizing the carbon dioxide reductions from ACE. Right. So before I ask you about the magnitude of the effect that you find, I want to follow up on that question that, you know, might occur to some, especially economists. So the question would be, you know, if a coal plant can become more efficient and become more competitive in power markets, uh, why isn't it doing that already? And, and why would a regulation incentivize them to, you know, be more efficient than they than they already might be if they were, uh, if they were smart uh, about their business? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think there are a number of different answers to that, but one is that entities often don't behave in the rational way that economists would expect them to act. Yeah. Uh, another is that the the fixed costs of making those investments um, are high enough that uh, they may not from an economic perspective, be worth it to those companies. Uh, but once they're required to make them, um, it it does end up reducing their operating costs. Right. So, yeah, so it reduces. So it could increase their, their capital costs that they have to pay off over the long term, but their marginal costs, which is what determines the price that they bid into the market for, that would could actually be lower. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And electricity is a pretty highly regulated market. So um, there are a lot of uh, regulatory processes that affect decisions in, um, in a way that wouldn't come into play in a perfectly free market. Right. Sure. Okay, great. So so let's talk about what you found then. Uh, so when you incorporate the rebound effect, um, if I read the paper correctly, uh, you find that about 30% of coal plants end up producing more carbon dioxide than they would if ACE didn't exist. So uh, I think you've already explained kind of the concept about how that happens, but do you want to elaborate on that uh, on that finding a little bit? Yeah. Well, Daniel, you mentioned that the rebound effect is pretty commonly observed in a lot of different policies. Uh, and in most of those contexts, the emissions rebound effect usually just makes the emissions reductions resulting from the policy smaller. Uh, but the surprising result that we found in our analysis of ACE is that the emissions rebound may be strong enough in this case to actually cause absolute increases in emissions at a lot of coal plants. Yeah. Um, so that's a pretty, uh, from what we know, pretty uncommon finding um, from the rebound effect. 
And a lot of people are actually shocked to realize that when we're talking about emissions increases at coal plants, we're we're comparing the baseline as no policy at all. So compared to no policy at all, we actually see 28% of coal plants producing more carbon. Wow. And so that's so 28% of coal plants produce more CO2 relative to if no policy existed, that's not comparing it to the clean power plant, for example. So this is really um, quite a quite a big difference. Exactly. Yeah. So the the takeaway from that that always feels kind of logically confusing to me is that while the purpose of ACE is to identify the best system for reducing emissions within coal plants, it's a bit confusing to think about the fact that the best system is actually increasing emissions at a large number of those plants. Um, And it's not clear that this will lead to significantly better outcomes emissions-wise compared to doing nothing. Right. And so you've talked so far about the increases that could occur at individual plants. When we aggregate up all those plants across the country, uh, what are the effects that we see in terms of national level carbon dioxide emissions? And, and also, you know, what is the, do you see variation across different states? Yeah. So in most of the years that APA modeled emissions outcomes, ACE is expected to lead to slightly lower national power sector emissions compared to no policy. But the modeling actually suggests that by 2050, ACE may cause higher emissions than no policy at the national level. Uh, And we think this is probably because of delayed coal plant retirements due to the fact that they're becoming more efficient. Right. So so they're more efficient and they're more profitable over the long term, which means they stay open longer and they continue emitting. Yeah, exactly. Um, So we primarily focused on the year 2030 when we looked at uh, state-level emissions outcomes. So in 2030, at the national level, emissions um, under ACE are expected to be 0.8% lower compared to no policy. But at the state level, there's a pretty big range in outcomes. Um, And we found that 18 states plus D.C. are expected to have emissions that are at least slightly higher compared to no policy at all. Um, So this is the rebound effect at work, because we're seeing that in most of those 18 states, their coal generation becomes less emissions intense. So the plants are becoming more efficient, but their volume of generation increases. Right. And so I I just remembered sometimes people talk about the rebound effect. And if the rebound effect is so big uh, that it actually leads to an increase in aggregate emissions, sometimes it's called the backfire effect. Is that right? I haven't heard that term, but that's a a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a, you know, a really bad rebound is a backfire. Right. Um, and so that's what we're seeing here. So those 18 states and plus DC you mentioned, are those, um, is there any way to sort of characterize the location of those states? Are they, are they sort of the, you know, Midwestern and Southeast states that have a lot of coal generation or uh, is there some other way to kind of group them? You know, it's actually pretty mixed across the country. We didn't see a really clear pattern uh, in which states are experiencing emissions increases. Okay, interesting. So we've been talking so far just about carbon dioxide, uh, but your analysis, as you've mentioned, does not only focus on CO2. It also looks at other emissions from coal-fired power plants, such as sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxides, uh, which both have significant health effects, um, as well as other you know, emissions from coal plants, such as mercury. So are, there, uh, are, are the results that you find for those non-CO2 emissions basically the same as the results of the CO2 analysis you just described, or do they differ in some ways? Yeah, we saw that the results were pretty similar to the results for CO2. 
So for sulfur dioxide, national emissions in 2030 are expected to decrease by about 0.7% under ACE compared to no policy, which is quite similar to uh, the results for CO2. And then we expect that 19 states will have emissions increases in sulfur dioxide. Uh On the nitrous oxide side, we're projecting a similar national decrease of about 1% in 2030. Uh, and then 20 states plus D.C. are expected to show uh, nitrous oxide emissions increases. Okay. So, yeah, so, pre- so pretty similar to, to the CO2 findings, it sounds yeah. like, with, some, with, a, with a little bit of variation. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the public health implications of um, increased uh, emissions of, of those particular pollutants? CO2, of course, um, is the primary driver of climate change, and we've talked a lot on this uh, podcast about the you know, risks to... Uh, different economic sectors and public health from climate change. But can you talk directly about um, sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxide? Yeah. So because these local pollutants are are also emissions from coal plants, any carbon policy targeting coal plants has pretty significant implications for public health. Uh, Sulfur dioxide and nitrous oxide are precursors to uh, PM 2.5 and ozone which are air pollutants that contribute to a lot of health issues, including asthma and cardiovascular disease. So we don't model the specific effects of changes in local pollutants in our research. For these types of pollutants, unlike carbon dioxide, it really matters where they're emitted uh, and where they end up. And that's why air quality modeling is really important. Uh, So when EPA did their own air quality modeling uh, as part of their analysis of the ACE rule, they estimated that compared to the CPP, ACE was likely to result in about 1,000 additional premature deaths per year and over 40,000 lost workdays. So that's due to um, the exacerbation of uh, health issues like asthma uh, and cardiovascular disease. Right. And so so that was EPA's own, own analysis that found that. That's interesting. Right. And if people want to look up that analysis by EPA, they would look for what the regulatory impact statement? Yep. So EPA published a regulatory impact analysis along with the ACE rule. And I believe some of the highlights of those results are published in a fact sheet uh, just on the, the ACE webpage. Okay, great. One question that's coming to mind is the uh, legal status of the ACE rule and sort of where it is in the regulatory process, as well as what uh, what it might be facing in terms of legal challenge in the future. Can you uh, give us an update on where things stand on the administrative front? Yeah. The ACE rule that's out now is actually the proposed rule. Uh, so the next step in the regulatory process is for EPA to release a final rule. Um, And as part of that, they're expected to incorporate the huge volume of public comments that that came in as a response to the proposed rule. So the final rule is expected out sometime in 2019, uh, but it really remains to be seen what types of changes we'll see in that rule compared to the proposed rule and whether they'll respond to any specific public comments. And I think it's it's very likely that we're going to see a large volume of legal challenges to the final version of the rule. Right. If there's one thing that's certain in environmental policy today, it's that any rule from the EPA will endure a substantial legal challenge. Exactly. Um, 
<laughs> one, one, one last question before we go to our top of the stack segment, which is about just sort of trends in the power sector more broadly. So I think many of our listeners will, will know that carbon dioxide emissions have declined in the power sector pretty substantially over the last uh, 10 years or so. Um, what, what does the ACE rule mean for the future of continued emissions reductions compared with uh, a world where maybe the clean power plan had stayed in place? Yeah. So actually, an interesting factoid that not a lot of people know is that the CPP obviously was never implemented because it was stayed by the Supreme Court. But the power sector actually is on track to meet the emissions targets of the CPP without having any policy in place at all. Uh, That's mostly because when the CPP was originally created back in 2015, uh, the EPA wasn't anticipating such a large increase in uh, natural gas generation and renewables that have played a big role in driving down emissions in the power sector. So the CPP was designed to continue updating every eight or so years in order to really leverage the changes in market conditions that could enable uh, further emissions reductions. But what we're seeing now with EPA's action on ACE is uh, a reversal in the the trend of increasing stringency of emissions targets. Uh-huh. Great. Well, uh, Amelia, thank you so much for, you know, sharing this t- total wealth of knowledge on on these different policies and, and the results uh, of your research, which are, which I think are really significant and important for, for us to know about. We're going to close it out now with uh, our top of the stack segment, where we ask you what's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack, uh, things that you've read or watched or heard lately that you've enjoyed uh, and that you'd recommend to our listeners. I'm going to start us off with a recommendation of a data visualization that I stumbled across recently in the uh, Washington Post webpage. So um, it's this data viz called uh, Mapping America's Wicked Weather and Deadly Disasters which is kind of kind of a overwrought title I think but um, but the data visualizations are really really cool it's um really um, detailed geospatial visualizations of natural disasters and weather trends in the United States for a variety of topics um, basically it shows you where since 2008 there have been major floods uh, tornadoes hurricanes wildfires earthquakes extreme heat and cold uh, and lightning strikes uh, and so these maps are just really detailed they're visually really nice and um, and and you see all sorts of interesting trends about you know where lightning strikes happen most frequently in the United States which I certainly hadn't thought much about um, as well as looking at you know where the earthquakes are happening what their magnitudes are tornadoes floods and more so 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 it's a really cool um, visualization, and we'll, and we'll put a link to it on our on our webpage. Um, but Amelia, what uh, what's on the top of your stack? That sounds really interesting. So on my side, what I want to recommend is actually another podcast, which I only listen to in my free time after I'm done listening to Resources Radio, of course. Exactly, of course. <laughs> but the podcast is called Mothers of Invention, and it's this really cool podcast hosted by two women. One of them is the former president of Ireland and the first female president of Ireland and they talk about the intersection of climate change and feminism and so it mainly features women that are leading efforts to address climate change and environmental justice issues I really love it because it kind of exposes you to women who are you know coming from all over the world from so many different backgrounds and they're all addressing climate problems in really innovative ways and ways that are informed by their own unique perspectives. So 
I find it really fascinating and empowering. Um, and it's also just a really good reminder of the extent to which climate change, you know, touches really every element of society and how the types of solutions that are emerging in different places not only address environmental issues, but also address really important social issues. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm literally looking it up right now so I can add it to my, my podcast. <laughs> you you love great. it. The second host of it, uh, besides Mary Robinson, who's the female president of Ireland, uh, is a comedian. And so it it kind of adds a little bit of entertainment value too. <laughs> Great. And the and the title of the podcast, of course, I, I think is a reference to Frank Zappa's band, which was called Mothers of Invention. I think so too. Um, yeah. So a little Zappa in there too. Can't hurt. <laughs> Great. Well, Amelia, this has been really fun and, and really interesting. Thank you so much for, uh, for talking to me and, and telling us about your research. Yeah, this has been great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.